This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It's great to see you here today. I want to add my words of welcome for those of you here, here, as well as those of you who are joining us at church online. It's great to be together. If uh, this is your first time with us, we've been talking about and we've been learning a lot about prayer over the last couple of months. And uh, it's exciting to come to this topic, as I've been hoping, with really, really fresh eyes. So whether if this is your first time or you've been here for the whole series, uh, it's been great to have you along for the journey. I want to jump right into things this morning. So if you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament. It's actually very early on, about a quarter of the way into your Bible. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, if you hit 2 Samuel, you've gone way too far. And uh, we've been looking at these stories in the Old Testament, and I just was even thinking yesterday, um, just personally, how grateful I am uh, to get to teach you these stories. It's an incredible honor and privilege uh, to open up God's Word, and, and really, uh, from my perspective, it's, it's just um, something I, I love to do. Uh, it's not easy. In fact, um, I spend a large part of my week just hoping I get this part of my job right. This is kind of an important part of it. But uh, I've been loving doing this because one of the things that I've been uh, just kind of keyed into is how everyone really has some connection to prayer and spirituality. You all have some history with prayer. You have some connection even in the world today to Spirituality. In fact, our world would tell you that everything at times is spiritual. And so I wanted to do kind of like go back to the beginning and look at the people that actually first prayed. Let's go back to our, the mystical side of prayer. And so we've been looking at all these different people in the Old Testament, and they've been showing us how prayer is really very individually based. It's very different depending on who you are and what your prayer needs uh, arise as. And so we've been looking at characters like Abraham, and he pleads with God, and we see him kind of really plead and, and go to God in that way. We see Jacob, and he wrestles with God. We see Moses, and Moses has this incredible ability to focus his attention on God. And then last week, we looked at the darkest, most depressing prayer ever. We looked at a guy named Haman, and he offered us a way to really pray in our darkest moments. And I was thinking this week, did, have you noticed a trend in these messages I'll kind of give it to you again. Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Haman. Do you notice a trend? They're all dudes. They're all guys. And, and in fact, today is the first day we're actually going to learn uh, from a woman. We're going to see her prayer. And I think there is so much we can learn from this incredible prayer. Even the guys in the room could learn something this morning, right? And there's something about this prayer. Her name is Hannah. And she's going to give us an incredible insight that we haven't seen yet in prayer. In fact, Hannah, all you need to know is she has one prayer, one desire, and it's to be a mom. She wants a family. In fact, this becomes her all-encompassing prayer. It's what she's focused on, and there's so much we can learn from her. And I would say she really teaches us this inner resolve, kind of this sense of urgency and praying from our heart. In fact, the title of my message today is One from the Heart. You're going to see Hannah has an incredible heart for family. Now, I'll just use this moment to kind of appeal to you. If you're here today and you're a mom or you're a dad or you're a grandparent, uh, there's probably something wired inside of us that draws us to that connection that only comes through family. 
And I'm a parent. I've got five kids, and my babies are all grown up now. But I think Sean and I, if we're honest, we would say that most of our prayers are for our kids. In fact, let me just appeal to you as parents for a moment. I don't know if you've ever said this, but I certainly know that I've probably said this, and I know I've heard this. Have you heard this before as a parent? Have you heard another parent say, oh, I would do anything for my child? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that yourself? Oh, I would do anything for my child. And I know in most cases that comes from, well, from a place of care and protection and love for your child. And, and then probably on the extremes, you know, we've seen examples of people who say that and they've really got more of this, you know, helicoptering and we've seen celebrities and news flashes of people who've done unethical things to try to, oh, do anything for their child. But I get it. Most of it is from a, a place of care and love and support. And as I said, I, I've probably said it as well for my kids. And uh, my kids, you know, Sean and I have noticed that as our kids have gotten older, um, our prayers have changed dramatically for our kids. Like when you have little kids, you pray for their little problems. <laughs> and then when you have big kids, they tend to have bigger problems, bigger life circumstances. And we're finding we can't always be with our kids. Our kids are, you know, all over the country. And some of them, due to military assignments, will probably be all over the world. And, and yet we find ourselves praying for them, praying for their care and, and the people that God surrounds them with, their, their network and friendships and, and their future spouses. We, we find ourselves praying for all those things. When we can't be there, we can always be people of great prayer. Uh, there was a story I came across um, a number of years ago. In fact, I've shared it already once from the stage a long time ago. And I just was reminded of this story because I was visiting one of my kids and driving through Texas. And I don't know, if you're ever in Texas, there's only three types of radio stations. There is country music, there is news talk, and then there's country western music. That's different in Texas. I don't know if you knew that or not. So I chose the middle option. I'm listening to sports and weather, and all of a sudden this person comes on and he says, this day in Texas history, October 14th, 1987. And I realize it's October 14th, 2022. And he starts to talk about Midlands, Texas. I'm actually driving right by the Midlands, Texas. And he reminds me of this story. He says, on this day, baby Jessica McClure was rescued from a well. Here's a picture of baby Jessica. Isn't she adorable? Well, she had a bit of a, of a problem because the story captured America's hearts and attention when at 18 months old, she was crawling around in her aunt's backyard and fell into a well. 22 feet, she fell down this well, and a full-on rescue mission took place. But it posed quite a significant challenge. So the police showed up, and the fire rescue showed up, and they couldn't get her out of this well because it, it went down to like eight inches in diameter. And I remember hearing how this just became such a newsflash. In fact, in fact, they called in specialists and contractors and mining engineers and TV crews showed up on the scene. In fact, this is the backyard uh, where all of this took place. And you can just see all these people focused on baby Jessica. I remember also at that time, uh, President Ronald Reagan actually put out um, an address to say, to call the nation to pray for baby Jessica. Well, after 56 hours, they used this water cutting technique and they drilled a well parallel to her and they rescued her and she was brought up from this earthen grave. Funny thing about it, um, as I'm listening to this news report, she actually, to this day, has no recollection of this happening to her. She was 18 months old. And she only lives like two blocks away from where this occurred. So she's got this constant reminder. But it just got me thinking. 
I mean, if this was your child, right? I mean, oh, you would pray, right? You would pray. You would get other people. And I think this would be a moment of really praying from the heart with a sense of urgency. You're going to see that in Hannah's prayer this morning. Hopefully you found your way to 1 Samuel chapter 1. You're going to meet a lot of characters in this reading this morning. Uh, In fact, you're going to meet Hannah, and we're going to really uh, kind of pull apart her prayer. But you're also going to meet her husband, Elkanah, and you're going to meet his other wife, Penaniah. It's very complicated. So let me try to explain it to you. Let's start by reading 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 4. It says, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Now let me just pause here for a moment and let's make sure we get the family tree. You've got Elkanah, he's the husband, and he's got one wife, Penaniah, and she's what? She's got lots of sons and daughters, it says, and he's caring for her on that side of his family. And then on the other side, he has Hannah. And the text tell us, tells us that she doesn't have any children. Her womb has been closed. He loves her, and he, he gives her two portions of meat, right? It's like two ribeyes for her on that side. And, and we can already see that there's going to be some tension. And I want to pause here because I think a lot of times Christians, we get asked these questions about the Bible. You know, like, well, the Bible says some things in it that I just can't get over. Like, how do you Christians support a Bible that promotes polygamy or promotes racism or promotes slavery? And they'll use an isolated instance. See, see Elkanah, he's in the Bible and he's got two wives. And Bible must be for polygamy. And I want to tell you this morning very clearly, the Bible does not support polygamy. In fact, the Bible is going to illustrate and show how polygamy distorts God's view of marriage. And you have to read the Bible all the way from beginning to end to learn that God is very consistent. He has one view. He has a covenant view of marriage between one man and one woman. Everything outside of that kind of gets exposed as distorting the view of marriage. And you're going to see that in this household. There's going to be rivalry. And Elkanah is going to play favorites. He's already doing that. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. In fact, let's pick back up and read starting in verse 6. It says, Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb... Her rival, which is Penaniah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now we kind of get a little bit more of a picture, right? We see these two wives, they don't get along, right? There's this tension, and it's all because Penaniah is a, a bully, right? She provokes Hannah. She irritates Hannah. And did you see how long this has been going on? It says year after year after you get, kind of get the sense that this is her every day. Every day is this reminder. You're not good enough. And she's just poking at her constantly. She's in deep anguish. She's weeping. And you read this, and again, why is this not working? Because there's two wives. It's not working on the home front. And Elkanah, I mean, let's just kind of look at him for a second. I mean, ladies, I mean, this is a real winner of a husband, right? I mean, he just sees completely, he just goes all over the top of her emotional needs, right? He comes home, it's like, honey, I'm home. Where's dinner? Oh, you're crying? 
again? You know, you just kind of get this sense that he's got no tolerance. I mean, oh, here, here's another, here's another portion of meat, right? I mean, aren't you happy with just me? Aren't I worth more than 10 sons? I mean, Elkanah, I mean, he just, he just makes it all about himself. She's got this clear need and care, and he just completely, just over the top. And now you get a little bit more of the context. This woman, Hannah, we haven't even looked at her prayer yet, but she's miserable, right? And, and I can tell some of you, you read this, and you read this with what I would call kind of an American mindset. And you think, well, big deal. She doesn't have any kids. So what? I mean, what's the problem? Well, you need to know in that day, it was really a big deal. In fact, um, children in that context were, were more than just children. In fact, a really smart guy, theologian by the name of Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, barrenness meant no foreseeable future. No future for you, your family, or your people. And so literally in that day, they lived in an agrarian society. It was entirely farm to table. That's how you lived. And your children became the way in which you produced uh, a harvest, a return. And the more children you had, the more of a labor force you had to go out into the fields and work. I think about it today. What's, what's the big issue today? Uh, we talk all the time about um, you know, supply chain issues, right? Uh, in that day, that was the supply chain. It was your children. And so the more children you had, the more of a labor force you had. And the more kids meant more income. Uh, the more kids you had meant more of a retirement opportunity. You would pass the farm down in the family. And also, it would mean that if you had children, you could literally defend your land. Your, your kids could take up arms against a foreign enemy or someone that's coming uh, to destroy you. So you read her problem, and yes, her problem, okay, on the surface, it seems like a big deal. It's an incredibly big deal. I mean, her issue is literally life and death. And the part I want to really get you to focus on this morning is I want you to see how she's navigating sort of these cultural temptations, right? I mean, she's getting kind of like, she's getting blasted from every side. In fact, even in her own home, she's getting these temptations to just say, well, this is what matters. This is what's valuable. And I would say the two temptations are success. <laughs> we see that. I mean, Penaniah is telling her, hey, you know, if you're a real woman, if you're real successful, you, you'll have children. You'll, you'll be a success then. And then even her own husband, he's saying, no, 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 the temptation is really about romance. Oh, come on, sweetie. You'd just be happy if you just, you know, worshiped me and spent time with me and did everything with me. And you're going to see that she's actually able to resist both of these temptations in her prayer. Now, we live in a different day, different age, uh, but I think it goes without saying we also have temptations. We have temptations from our society and culture to say, no, no, what's really important is, is career or getting promoted. Or, or maybe what's really important is, you know, family and, and having one boy and one girl and, you know, 1.9 children and and maybe it looks like things like, well, you know, you have to be married at a certain age, or you have to own a home by a certain time frame. And, and we have the same challenges and temptations that we have to navigate. And this is what I love about Hannah. She's going to pray. We're finally going to read her prayer, and I want you to watch how she rejects this norm. So finishing up the story, picking back up in verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, we're going to come back to those words. I underlined them on the screen here. You can underline them in your Bible as well. The whole story kind of revolves around this moment, this decision. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. 
In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the Lord of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Okay, there's a lot going on here. And I said the story kind of revolves around this decision she makes. And it's those two little words where she stood up, where everything changes. And that may look minor to you, but that was actually a decision that she had to make. She could stay in an oppressive situation where she was constantly being tormented. Or in this moment, she makes this very pivotal decision to stand up. These two words in the Hebrew language stood up are actually one word. It's the word tacom, and it's kind of a complex word. I don't know if we really have an exact correlation in English, but it kind of, in essence, means to rise above. And that's actually what she's doing. She's not just physically standing up, but she's rising above the systems around her, around these systems like her husband and Penani and even Eli, another character, the priest. We're going to get to him in just a moment. But it's only when she rises above that she's able to pray. And it's as if her prayer is sort of this, enough is enough. And I hope you caught it in this prayer. This prayer is, is actually very different from any of the other prayers we've looked at. Because this prayer is actually a vow. She actually makes a vow. Did you see that in the prayer? The vow she makes is actually the one thing she's asking for. She's saying, God, if I could receive this one thing, a child then I would commit right here, right now, before you've even answered my prayer, I would commit to giving this one thing completely back to you. And I got to tell you, just honestly, as your pastor, this, this really challenged me this week. Because I, I kind of was thinking about my own prayer life, and I felt a little convicted. And I wonder if you do too. Like, do you pray like this? Like, God, whatever it is, whatever it is that I'm praying for, I want to give it back to you fully. Maybe another way to think about it is this statement I've been thinking about all week where are you willing to give God the very thing that you're praying for? I mean, the very thing that you're praying for, are you willing? I, I think this, honestly, this is a mature prayer life. I mean, these are the, the people that have been sort of mentors to me. I was looking back and I was thinking, that's, that's how they prayed. They, they were able to pray in a sense where it wasn't just about, God, give me, give me, give me. God, let me receive. But God, whatever you want to do through me, I want to be, I want to be blessed so that I can be a blessing to others. Do you pray this way? I think, you know, we kind of have the example sometimes with the lottery. What was the lottery at? I mean, it was like super high just recently. And I don't know, whatever it is, 80 million, 100 million. And, and you think, oh, if I win the lottery, God, I'll give you back a million. I'll cut you in on a million, right? Like, like why wouldn't you give it all to him? You didn't have it all before you played the lottery. You shouldn't play the lottery anyways, right? And, and you just have this sense of like, no, I'll give him a part of it. But, but Hannah's saying, no, I'll give it all back to you. And her promise is, is really a costly one. Again, this whole idea of having a child and giving the child back over to be a priest, to be a follower of God, would have been 
a really big thing in her day. In fact, you couldn't just make this decision if you were a mom or a parent, like, oh, I want, I want my kid to be a priest. Like, maybe today you want your kid to be a pastor when he grows up, and, uh, and you know, you think, well, they'll just go to seminary and become a pastor. Well, in that day, it wasn't that easy. In fact, you had to be born into a specific tribe, the tribe of Levi, and Hannah clearly is not. And so the only other option was to dedicate your child through what was called a Nazarite vow. And it had all these really high requirements, like never to drink wine, never to get their hair cut. Nazarites had these long hairs, big, big beards, and uh, no razor to ever touch their hair. It says that in the text. And then the hardest part, you had to give your child, once it was weaned, give your child over to the priest. Think about this mom. This is all she's praying for, and she's come to this resolution that she would take her child and give him over to the service of the Lord. I mean, that means for this mom, no decorating Christmas cookies, you know, no like, okay, Johnny, let's go, let's go watch your little league game. She would have completely surrendered this child over to her Lord and to her God. I think this just has these ramifications that, that challenge our prayer ideas. More than just praying for your food or praying for God to bless you, are you willing to pray in a way where you'll actually give up the one thing you're asking for? Maybe I'll say it a different way. And I don't know, I'll, I'll kind of be vulnerable for a moment and maybe I'll be all alone in this one. Uh, but from time to time, you don't have to raise your hand on this. Do you ever feel like you, you kind of like to control things? Like, I'm not asking if you're like a full-on control freak. But, you know, you just, you like to have some control over certain areas of your life. I know me, Ron, your pastor, at my worst, I, I can become kind of this person that, that has to control things. And I've been working on this and making some ground. And then in other areas, I can feel like in my life I haven't made any ground. And, and probably the most obvious is in my home, in my marriage. I still feel like there's some things I need to control. I've been married to my beautiful wife for 28 years. If you don't know my wife, I married way out of my like, league, like way out of my league. And, and she told me the other day that I've been doing it wrong. I've been loading the dishwasher incorrectly. And I took issue with this. I said, what do you mean? I, I load the dishwasher the way you normally should. We're, we're talking mainly about the utensils, and I like to take the utensils and put one up, and then one down, and then one up, and then one down. I think they get cleaner that way. You see my control issues? And she tells me, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, no, I'm not. She goes, no, no, no. Here's what I want you to do. So she's telling me how to load the dishwasher. Put all the forks in one area and all the spoons and all, the, and all of them need to go right side up. And I said, sweetie, this is where you've got it wrong. I mean, you, you should know this. Like, this is 28 years of marriage. This is where it leads you, mind you. And I said to her, I said, you know, this, just look at the spoon. Look at the anatomy of a spoon. If you put them all together, spoons by nature will spoon together, right? And they just won't get clean. And so, I don't know, I guess I'm trying to sort out, this is cheaper than counseling. So, like, let me just ask you this morning, who's right. Who's right? I'll spare you the answer. She's right. <laughs> She's always right. And the sooner you learn that in your marriage, the sooner you'll get over this sense, this illusion, this myth of control. And I think that's a great way to think about prayer, just letting God take control. The second thing she does in this story that is just amazing is, is her prayer and her life really stands its ground against critics. I love this. This is actually my favorite part of the whole story. She's weeping, right? I mean, I'm laughing at the humor of this. I mean, she's just, she's put it all out there before God. She's weeping. She's in bitter anguish. She's praying. And do you see that? Like her lips are moving and no words are coming out. Actually, the New Testament talks about how we can have these prayers that are like groans and the spirit of God can still 
fully understand them. And she's praying in that way, fully the way she should be. And Eli, the priest, calls her out, says, you must be drunk, right? I mean, he calls her drunk. Like, that'd be like your pastor just going around. Yeah, quit being a drunkard, right? You know, like, seriously, I mean, he's just calling her out. And I love her response. She just stands her ground. She says, I have not been drinking wine or beer. I'm not country or classy. You know, like, I haven't been doing any of that stuff. I'm just pouring out my heart in anguish. I think she teaches us so much about just allowing our prayers to kind of stand ground. You got any critics? You got anyone who just kind of thinks you should be doing it a certain way? They nitpick at you. They're just constantly getting at you. You got any critics? I've, I've learned over the years that critics sort of just, they congregate. And you have a choice to make when you have critics in your life. You can do one of three things. You can, number one, you can let your critics consume you. And oh, they will. In fact, by nature, a, a critic wants more than anything else to consume every ounce of energy that you have. I mean, I meet people, I talk to people, and they'll say things like, oh yeah, I, I just like to stir the pot. Oh yeah, I just like to get people riled up. And if you don't think that's true, then you're probably not spending enough time on social media because I see it there the most. And it's just consuming. Someone makes a statement, and then they've got to have 35 replies to it, a back and forth. And let me just ask you, do you think you're ever going to win a conversation with a typewriter, with a keyboard? Probably not. And so you can let that consume you, but honestly, who has time for that? Second thing you can do is you can try to ignore your critics. And maybe you can have some success with this. I, I don't know. I, I tend to find that my critics still seem to rent space in my head, but you might have some minor relief. I, I think the third thing to do with critics is to state your case and then to move on. State your case and then simply move on. Just as Hannah does. I'm praying. I'm not drunk. I'm praying out of my great anguish and that's it. I want to tell you as your pastor, you don't have to answer to everyone. You only have to answer to one person and that's your God and your Savior and you give him your life in full and to everyone else, you just state your case and then Sometimes you have to just move on. In fact, a friend of mine taught me these two words, just so valuable, just over and next. You know, some things, are, they're, just, they're just over, and it's on to the next. I think we can learn a lot from Hannah. Uh, last thought, and it's really from the words of Eli here. Lastly, I think Eli gives us something that we can really learn from here. He says to her, he says, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked for. Eli may have got it wrong with his assessment of Hannah, and he could still make it sound like this prayer is more of a genie in the bottle. But I love what he says here. I think when we pray from the heart, we need to be willing to pray and then go in peace. I think there's a misconception sometimes where we think we need to pray and then we need to wait. We need to wait on the Lord. And that's not at all what's shown in this scripture. In fact, in this story, Eli says pray and then go. Go in peace. Go in peace with God and with others. And maybe for some of you this morning, maybe you even just need to hear that you need to be at peace with yourself. And this peace is this peace that, that transcends all of our understanding. It's actually the word shalom. It's this peace that covers all of our lives and all of the areas where we think we need to meddle and have complete control. And we can trust in God who's in charge of all of our lives. He's in charge of all of the outcomes, all of the elections, all of the stock market ups and downs. We have a God who offers us this peace in every area of our life. So I want to tell you this morning that today you can go in peace as well. 
And this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said these same words. He said to go and to make disciples, make that your focus. And this peace that I have, I leave with you. Do not be afraid. So if you'd simply bow your heads, let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are a God of peace. And in the prayers that we have and in the moments and situations where we feel lost or we feel voiceless or we feel that you haven't answered God, this story shows us that we can ultimately trust the peace that you provide. And so I just pray for this group of people that are here, that your peace would come down and it would rest on every heart and on every soul, that our hearts would not be troubled, would not be full of fear, that we would sense this peace that you give, and then we would share this with the world that so desperately needs it. God, we're going to keep our hearts open and attentive to whatever you may have to say and speak to us in this moment. We wish you all of our hearts and all of our worship. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide. 